USDA certified organic was out first. Organic farmers invented it 50 years ago, and they invented the idea of certifying something in a food food package or food product to be better for you or better for the environment. That idea was created by organic. So not only that's the reason that it's the most widely recognized, it's taken 50 years of consumer education to get to the point where we are now. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Jessica Beckett-Pars, foundation director at CCOF, about the history and future of organic farming and certification. Hi, I'm Jesse Beckett-Parr. I'm the foundation director for CCOF, which was founded as California Certified Organic Farmers in 1973. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. I'm super excited to talk about you as a longtime organic industry nerd. <laughs> I'm a big yes. fan of us. <laughs> Proudly wearing the nerd badge. Totally. I'm a big fan of what you and CCOF are doing and other organic certifiers in the industry in general, like just kind of moving things forward, you know, but I especially love what you and the foundation are doing. But before we dive in there, I'm curious, when I was doing a little research on you for the episode, I noticed that almost all your experience listed on LinkedIn had something to do with agriculture. So where did that passion for agriculture come from? Sure. Yeah. So it started pretty young. My mom fell in love with a farmer when I was young, and he was a farmer in the Salinas Valley. So if you're not familiar with California, we call the Salinas Valley out here the salad bowl of the world. So if you're in the Midwest or in the East Coast during the winter and you're eating hearts of romaine or bagged salad mix, it's probably coming from Salinas, California. And he was a large-scale farmer, a couple thousand acres, conventional farmer, and he grew almost entirely leafy greens and innovated in the industry. I grew up with bagged salad mix in our kitchen being taken apart and tested for shelf stability and pest resistance. So our house was really a laboratory (laughs) figuring out how to make lettuce last in a bag longer. (laughs) And yeah, so he was a conventional farmer and When I was in middle school, he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, and that quickly progressed to his liver and then his lungs and then his brain, and he died when I was in high school, so over the course of about five years. And during that journey, my mom, who was very committed to saving his life, threw out all of the food in our house, and she bought a giant stainless steel juicer. And she put him on this thing called the Gearson diet, which was no processed foods, all organic, very little salt, very little sugar, mostly fruits and vegetables and meat. And I was in about seventh, eighth grade when that happened. So we went from eating the standard American diet of Kraft mac and cheese and hot dogs and a lot of frozen food to all organic juice. (laughs) which was a radical transformation for a middle school, early high school student. And so my parents really, they got religion during that period about food. 
And they were very clear that his lifetime career in conventional agriculture, being exposed to all kinds of synthetic pesticides and herbicides in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, had really done a number on his body. And so they started to study organic agriculture. They started to transition their farming operations towards organic. They took me to the Ecological Farming Association conference when I was an early high school student, which is really the mecca and the heartbeat of the West Coast sustainable agriculture scene, organic scene. And I was hooked. And after he passed, I went from being a 17-year-old who really wanted to be on Broadway to a 17-year-old who had a mission statement for the rest of my life. So that was 20 plus years ago. And I've been in it ever since in various different capacities. And I've been incredibly fortunate to be at the right place at the right time and find incredible mentors and people to work with and learn from. And now I get to do that work at CCOF. So that's how the story started. Yeah, definitely a rough story. I'm I'm sorry to hear about that. That's not fun to go through as a child or an adult. I can say that for sure. But one of the things I've noticed is that terrible circumstances or dramatic moments in life often nudge you in a dr- one direction or another. And I, some of the people I look up to most in different industries are there because of cancer or they got laid off or a family member got ill or something like that. And that forced them to really reconsider their priorities in life. And then they, you know, with whatever time they have left, they decided to focus on what really matters to them and try to make the world a better place for others too. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I deeply believe that no family should have to go through what my family went through. And I wake up every day grateful that there's the opportunity to work towards that goal with a whole lot of like-minded people. Absolutely. I just wish we as people or country or anything could get to those, wait a minute, this seems like it's better for me and the world moments quicker without some of that trauma attached to it. But unfortunately, that's kind of the way the human mind works. Humans just, we don't like change. We like doing things the way that we've been told to do things or that we've learned to do things from a young age. And some of this change towards organic agriculture, towards a more sustainable form of agriculture is going to take a lot of time and energy and work and investment. And it's completely possible and it's the right move for all these different reasons, whether it be climate change or human health or environmental impacts, but it is going to take time and energy and it is a change. Yeah, absolutely. I've said this on a couple past episodes, but it always seems to keep coming up. But (laughs) something I've been hearing about kind of human psychology is that you don't make changes when it's a should, like, you know, we all know we should exercise more, eat healthier or whatever, but you only really make those changes when it's a must. And I feel like sometimes it's those health scares that turn things from a should into a must. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're having a whole lot of musts this year right now. I was helping a friend earlier help evacuate from some of the fires in California. And we're in a must right now with climate. And I think folks are waking up to that across the United States. We're in a must change practices immediately. And thankfully, there's definitely options to do that in the realm of agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, another example where I wish people would have gotten there a little sooner. And obviously, some people did, you know, like this movement's been going for a while. But the general population, I wish we would have gotten to this must stage in their mind before it was a must in reality. Mm-hmm. Well, we're there now. Yeah. 
Well, that's a silver lining, I suppose. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're at CCOF now, but I know you had a bit of a journey on your way to get there with a few other roles. Can you give us a little bit of the highlight of some of your early career path and how you ended up with CCOF? Yeah, I'm always interested in career pathing. I think it's fascinating to see how people end up doing what they're doing, and so much of it stems from relationship. So I had all kinds of career opportunities that were laid out for me through relationship. I started working on food systems in college. So I worked for the Community Food Security Coalition, which was a broad NGO run out of here on the West Coast, but across the U.S. And I was working in food systems in colleges and universities, serving universities and colleges and trying to figure out metrics about what they were serving and how they wanted to shift their dining and how students were involved in that. And out of college, through a connection with one of my professors in college, I was connected with Deborah Coons Garcia, who is, yes, Jerry Garcia's widow, but has also made a couple of the seminal documentaries about food. She made this film called The Future of Food, which was about GMOs and the anti-GMO movement. And she came and showed a rough cut of that film in my class in 2002, 2003, And she and I formed a relationship, and I ended up coming out and working for her on the West Coast during a couple of summers as I was in college. So I was waitressing in San Francisco, and I was working, I was moonlighting for her, helping create her community outreach strategy for a film that would seed the anti GMO movement in the US. And that film was incredibly prescient because it really drew together uh, these critiques of the corporatization of the food system, but really focusing on seeds and genetic engineering and patenting and bringing those things all together. Beautifully made film. So I got to be involved in the post-production work on that film over a couple of years and help seed that movie into the hands of community activists and church basements and nonprofit organizations all across the United States. And then when I graduated from college, I came out to the West Coast and I was really, as folks are wont to do after they've spent a lot of time in books and computers, I was like, I just need to get my hands in the dirt. So I took a very low paid internship on a farm out here in California and I lived in a shack on the side of a Redwood Mountain and I helped run a small scale CSA and goat farm up in the Santa Cruz mountains. And I realized I was able to do that out of a great privilege. I did not have student loans coming out of college, which is an incredible privilege coming from a whole bunch of different reasons for my family and the way things lined up for me. So I made $100 a month and I ran a farmer's market in the Kaiser Santa Teresa Hospital in downtown San Jose. So I would work five days on the farm. And then one day on the weekends, I would run a farmer's market that was embedded in the heart of a Kaiser hospital. And then Sundays I had off. So I did that for about a year and kind of decompressed from the college experience. And at the end of that year, I was volunteering at this beautiful farm festival that used to be held at Phil Belly Farm, one of the founders of the organic food movement out here on the West Coast. It has been the most incredible farm party, end of season party called the Hose Down. And they did it for three decades, three and a half decades. So I was scooping ice cream <laughs> to volunteer at this this farm fundraiser benefit for the Ecological Farming Association. I'm covered in ice cream. There's all kinds of screaming children in a line around me. I've been there for hours and I'm hot and tired. And Deborah Coons Garcia 
gets into my ice cream line. I haven't seen her in a couple of years at this point, and mm. she looks like she just walked out of a fabulous French painting. She's got a great hat and a scarf on, and she, she walks up to me, and again, covered in ice cream, hot, tired. She goes, Jessie, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, I'm volunteering so I can help with this festival. She goes, no, I mean, with your life. What are you doing with your life? And I was like, well, I'm living on a shack on the side of a mountain making $100 a month. <laughs> running a farmer's market in a hospital in San Jose. And she goes, well, I'm thinking about making a new movie. Why don't you write me an email? So I I wrote her a long email that said, I want to help you make this movie. And I'm so, I'll do whatever you want me to. And she wrote me back and she said, oh, that's so great. I'd love for you to manage my office. Oh, <laughs> Move wow. to Marin and you can come manage my office. And I said, I really sat on it. I was like, oh, I got a job offer. That's awesome be fabulous if I could move out of the shack that I'm living in because it's starting to get cold and there's no heat, no electricity. But I said, you know, I'm not really an office manager type. I'm not that detail oriented. I'm really good with humans. So that's excellent. But, you know, a good office manager has got the shift like very much buttoned down. So I wrote her back and I said, you know, I can't manage your office, but if you need like a research assistant or a producer type, I'm happy to travel. I'm happy to do anything that needs to happen on the road for a film production. And I didn't hear back from her, so I started to take other job opportunity interviews, and I was on my way into an interview with a really well-known research institution that works in organic, and I was all dressed up in my little suit heading into this interview for this other job, and I got a call from Deborah, and she's like, I want you to join my team. Join my team, and we'll travel the world, and we're going to make a film about soil, and I was kind of flabbergasted because I hadn't really thought that was going to be a possibility. I was like, well, I turned down her office manager job. I can't imagine there's something else there. And I walked into this interview with this other organization and I said, I just got off the phone with Deborah Grunes Garcia and she wants to travel the world and make a film on soil with me. And they said, well, this interview's done. We all think you should take that job. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That was a good idea. So I did that. And I spent five years with Deborah on the road all over the world. We traveled to four different continents and we made this film called The Symphony of Soil, which was a beautiful documentary about soil and the global health of soil food systems and how soil is this living skin of the earth that's an incredibly precious commodity. And of course, it talked, again, very prescient. She was really ahead of her time. She was talking about climate change as it relates to soil carbon sequestration and organic farming as one of these climate amelioration techniques, but also kind of a beautiful soils 101 class. And it took us to the deserts of Egypt along the Nile and to the fjords of Norway to the birthplace of soil with the glaciers. And we traveled through India to learn about indigenous soil stewardship techniques and water holding techniques that brought back rivers in the Rajasthan region of India. So it was an incredible privilege, again, to be taken under the wing of somebody who I consider a visionary and to be able to help steward their vision. So I did that for five years. Such an awesome opportunity. And I'm loving how you, you know, were interested in theater, but decided not to go into that industry, but ended up making movies anyway. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it's a bit of that vacuum. But, you know, you develop certain skills in certain yeah. areas, and then sometimes they replicate later in life in, in interesting ways. And even though I'm no longer producing films and movies, I use those same techniques that I used in storytelling every day in my job. So... Yeah, so I did that for five years. And at the end of that, 
journey. I felt like I was at a crossroads. I was starting to get more job opportunities in film production to be associate producers, that type of thing, production managers in the Bay Area documentary film scene. But my heart was still in agriculture. And I was like, well, what is it that I really want to do? And I thought, I, I really want to keep going down this path of agriculture. That's the passion. The film thing was a, was a means to the agricultural ends of that journey. So I ended up going back to grad school at UC Davis. I got into the community development program there, which is part of the College of Agriculture. And I had another incredible mentor, Ryan Galt, who's now the director of the Agricultural Sustainability Institute at UC Davis. But at the time, they had just launched a food systems major, which I got to teach in, got to be a teaching assistant and research assistant which helped pay my way through grad school. So I was working and learning at the same time. So I finished a master's degree in a couple of years, and then I went back into consulting. It was after the 2008 crash, and there weren't a lot of steady jobs. So I ended up taking contract gigs with a whole range of nonprofits across Northern California, which was fabulous for relationship building, but it wasn't really a stable landing place. And I'm somebody, I'm kind of like a long-term commitment type person. I like to get into a place where I can build something for a long period of time and create relationships over a long period of time. So eventually those consulting gigs led me to a full-time job at CCOF. And that was eight years ago. So that's how, what she wrote. There it is. That's how I ended up where I am now. So what, what inspired you to go back to school for community development? I looked at all the people in my life that I most admire. I kind of did like a matrix map. And this was really at that crossroads of, am I going to be a film person or am I going to be a food person? And none of those people were film directors. (laughs) They were all community food systems activists. They were people who ran nonprofit organizations that work with youth and food justice. They were folks that were helping drive community-supported agriculture in urban regions in New York City. They were folks who were on the ground connecting real people with real resources, moment to moment, helping meet people's needs. And in some cases, they were visionaries. And in some cases, they were folks who really just rolled up their sleeves and got to work. And they were good community members. And they were folks who were working towards this larger vision of food access, right? But also organic agriculture and sustainable agriculture and lifting up the possibility of those two forms of farming. Gotcha. Very interesting. And part of the reason I asked is because I've just instinctively done a bunch of community development slash organization work through my professional association or even through this Evolve CPG community. It's just kind of the my natural inclination, but I, I never gotten any formal education in it. So... <laughs> It's fun to know that there are programs out there like that, and I could probably learn a lot more. Oh, it's the real thing. Yeah, the science. I have a master's of science in community development. Nice. That's awesome. Maybe I'll have to pick your brain on that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, so you landed at CCOF. I almost keep saying CCC because I have this other organization I help run called Common Cause Collective. <laughs> so I keep almost saying CCC. But CCOF, you are at CCOF now, and you're in the foundation, but did you start at the foundation or did you start somewhere else and move into the foundation? Yeah. So California Certified Organic Farmers, CCOF, we went to an acronym maybe a decade and a half ago because we were formed in California in 1973, but over time we've grown and now the membership of CCOF is over 4,300 members in 44 states and four countries. So it's no longer 
really appropriate for us to call ourselves California Certified Organic Farmers because we certify farmers, processors, handlers, retailers, restaurants, and we're represented very broadly geographically. Our home office base is in Santa Cruz, but we have staff that are spread throughout the United States and Mexico. So that's why we have an acronym. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) Keeps a little bit of the history, but it also lends itself a little bit better to just being a a larger being than one that's based solely in California. Yeah. And speaking of larger being, I think as far as I know, CCOF is one of the bigger organic certifiers, but I don't know where it ranks amongst all of them. Do you know? Yeah, I do. We certify more operations than any other organic certification company or organization in the country. So for those of you who aren't familiar with how organic certification works, I suppose I'll start there. Organic certification Back in the day, in the 1970s and 80s, I call it the Wild West of organic certification, there were these community organizations that were run primarily by farmers that were groups of like-minded individuals who came together and formed their own standards of what organic would be. And so there was California Certified Organic Farmers in California. There was Moses, which was Midwest. There was Florida Organic Growers in Florida. There was NOFA which is in New York, there was Maine, Mofka. These are all different groups of farmers who, in a similar time period over a decade, 70s and 80s, were coming together and saying, how do we create a market distinguishment for this thing that we call organic? And so they came up with a list of practices that they were going to allow in what they would call an organic production system. And then they would sit down at a table with their neighbor's plan for their farm and review all their inputs and review their practices and standards. And regional certification bodies, chapters at CCOF would decide who could be in, who could be out. And it was run like that for decades. It was run as a fully volunteer organization well into the 1980s until the numbers got too big, until there were too many folks. And there was a breaking point where they said, okay, we can no longer run this as a democratically governed, decentralized, entirely volunteer-based organization of farmers. They said, we need some professional staff. (laughs) (laughs) They hired in office staff and inspectors and eventually an executive director. And over time, it grew from the dozens of farmers all the way to what it is today, which is 4,300. But over that time period, they also were in communication with these groups across the country comparing standards, comparing like, okay, what are you calling organic? And as food began to be shipped across the United States, they realized that they needed to have a unified language for what organic certification meant. It's one thing if these are small operations that are only selling at a local farmer's market. It's entirely different if you have people from Florida who are selling organic oranges and they are traversing state boundaries (laughs) and geographic boundaries because then you have something that says organic from Florida and you have something that says organic from California and making sure that those things mean the same thing became incredibly important to the movement. So here in California, we, CCOF, was involved in creating the national standards for organic. And all these different groups from across the country petitioned to the USDA to create a regulatory agency to govern organic. I want you to think about what other industry has gone (laughs) to the U.S. government and said, we want you to create a standard and then regulate us. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't think of any. I have yet to have somebody tell me about one. And so all these different groups across the U.S. were involved in creating what we now know as the National Organic Standards, which is housed at the USDA. And that national legislation was passed in 2002. So there's a lot of history between 1973 and 2002. A lot of things happened along the way. But at 2002, there was this demarcation where these national standards were passed. They created a National Organic Standards Board, the NOSB, which oversees what can be an organic and what can't. And that's an industry board of 17 folks. They are appointed by the Secretary of Agriculture, and they're housed under the National Organic Program. And they are a regulatory agency. All of their meetings are public, and they are published, and people line up at the microphone to tell them about which input in organic pig production should be allowed and which shouldn't. And people submit comment letters and they publish the regulations or the draft regulations in advance. It's a, it's a huge process. It's a huge community development process, really coming back to community development. Organic farmers created something that was deeply democratic. And as such, it is can be kind of slow. <laughs> it's yeah. rulemaking. So underneath the National Organic Program, the standards, which are governed now by the National Organic Standards Board, NOSB has the power to make and change or recommend making and changing those regulations. There's over 80 accredited certifiers in the United States. And some organic certification companies are mom and pop operations with two people all the way up to more or less where CCOF is. There's a few larger organic certifiers and we've got 150 full-time staff and 75 contract inspectors. Like I said, we're spread out across the United States and Mexico. And so we all play by the same rules. So there's one standards book. That's the quality manual that everybody references. That's the playbook for all of these different accredited certifiers. And something that's interesting that most people don't know is that we are audited. CCOF is audited. <laughs> all of these certifiers that make day-to-day decisions about what you can and can't use or can and can't do on your farm property or in your retail institution or in your manufacturing facility, we are then audited very frequently (laughs) by the USDA to make sure that the decisions that we're making are correct and to maintain our ability to certify. And this is the type of thing that kind of runs only in the super nerdy corner of the industry, but there are certifiers that lose their license from the USDA because they're unable to keep accurate records or because the decision-making protocol isn't tight. So there have been certifiers that have given up, like, yeah, we can't do this anymore or have lost their license. So that, you know, when you're talking about food labels or people like to call them bugs on the side of any packaging, USDA certified organic is the only one of those food labels that is accredited by the USDA. There is no other like third party certification scheme that then has the backing of the USDA and also the accountability to that larger governance structure. And I think that that brings a lot of integrity to the system. Yeah, it's probably part of what's helped it become one of the most recognizable certification logos on packaging is that authority. Well, USDA certified organic was out first. Organic farmers invented it 50 years ago, and they invented the idea of certifying something in a food food package or food product to be better for you or better for the environment. That idea was created by organic. So not only that's the reason that it's the most widely recognized. It's taken 50 years of consumer education to get to the point where we are now. (laughs) Sadly, yes. 
But we're here now. That's that's good. Like you said before, we're finally at a point where most of the people in the country and our world are ready to do something about climate change. And obviously organic is one of those paths. Absolutely. Okay. So that's a great overview. Appreciate you walking through that. And then the CCOF also has a foundation. Can you explain a little bit more about what the foundation does in some of its programs? For sure. Yeah. So CCOF has three legal entities. We have a certification entity, which does the day-to-day operations of certification. We have a 501c5, which is a lobbying organization, and we lobby at the state and federal level for and behalf of organic producers. And then we have a foundation, which really focuses on education and training. So we raise money to support folks who are interested in pursuing organic as a career, We've given away $800,000 through our Future Organic Farmers program over the last few years, and we support students in high school and higher and vocational education who want to pursue organic education. We work with farmers who have been impacted by all kinds of natural disasters through our Brickmont Hardship Assistance Fund, and we've given away hundreds of thousands of dollars to farmers who have been impacted mostly by climate change, quite frankly, but also recently, more recently through the pandemic. And then our last granting program that we do is an organic transitions program. And we work with farmers who want to transition to organic through a whole package that starts with money. We raise money from private interests to give money to farmers to transition their practices and to use very like organically compliant regenerative practices on their farm. So that could be cover cropping or hedgerows, or it could be machinery to make sure that you can till in a certain way. It could be to help transition animal stock and animal feed or to buy organic seeds, that type of thing. So that's our organic transition program. And we've given away a half a million dollars. We just started last year to farmers who want to transition to organic. And we nest that inside of a basket of technical support. So we work with all community, kind of community dictated third-party providers to provide access to additional financing, to access relevant agronomic information and coaching. We have a mentorship program where we pair folks who want to transition to existing organic farmers who are successful that kind of meet their cultural specifications and are growing the same type of thing that they're growing within regions. And then we work on market access as well. So we try to hook people up with organic markets so that they have the the money to sustain the yield loss that happens to organic transition, that they have the agronomic information that they need. They have markets lined up when they're ready to transition. And we've done this with small groups of individuals. Right now, we have an organic transition program focused on the Latinx community in the central coast of California. And we're working with folks who are former farm workers, generations old farmers, but in the U.S. have been working as farm workers to transition onto their own parcels and start organic farms. And then we've worked with really large-scale operations. So last year, we worked with Anheuser-Busch to transition thousands of acres of barley production (laughs) into organic to support their Michelob Ultra Pure Gold line of organic barley. So we really work in all these different realms to help folks transition to organic. And then the last program that we have is really... It's really on the visionary end. It's called a Roadmap to an Organic California. And we outline what the benefits of organic are. 
So we have a really beautiful book that anybody in the nerd sector of the organic realm is welcome to reference. It's called The Benefits of Organic under the Roadmap to an Organic California. You can find it as a downloadable PDF on our website. And it is a compendium of all of the peer-reviewed research data on organic that is out there right now, over 300 peer-reviewed articles to look at how organic is a solution to climate change, economic inequality, and health inequities as the three different categories that we look at. So if you're looking at how does an organic diet impact field development inside a uterus, you can find it (laughs) in this benefits report. If you're looking at how does organic agriculture impact climate change, you can find it in this report. And again, it's all referenced back to this really beautiful literature review. So that's the Roadmap to an Organic California Benefits Report. And then springboarding off of that, we created a second manual specifically for California about political actions that we can take here in California to move forward the needle on organic. And our goal is to get organic agriculture from 10.5% of all agricultural in California, what it is right now, to 30% by 2030. So we are looking to really raise the bar on the amount of land farmed organically here in California to realize those social and environmental economic benefits that the benefits report lays out. So that was a two-part project. And now we're in the middle of implementing those plans. So we're kind of going down our policy report one by one, looking at what has the opportunity to move at the state house here in California. And really our vision is that this roadmap to an organic California will be used in other states as a guide for them to make political change because there's a whole lot of mechanisms in state politics that are universal. So we're looking at For instance, the WIC program, Women's, Infants, and Children's here in California. Currently, you're not allowed to use those dollars to spend on organic milk, for example. And that program is universal across all the 50 states, right? So if we can make modifications to a state-level program like WIC, which has national implications, then we can create the roadmap for other states to follow suit. It's very nerd-worthy, incredibly detail-oriented, but again, those PDFs are available through our website and would be happy to talk to anyone in the sector who's interested in delving more deeply into the details. Awesome. Yeah, I was curious how that's been going because we helped design that that first benefits report and set the tone for the second report back in 2019 through my agency, Modern Species. So I was excited to be able to put that together because, you know, a huge chunk of our clients are all organic, you know, B Corp, et cetera, all trying to change the world. And so they're all referencing all these different studies. And like with Organic Valley, for example, we've produced some pieces about the benefits of grass milk and organic and all these different things. So to have one report that pulled like all of the significant data out there on the benefits of organic was a fun project to work on. And then I was just curious how the policy report has been doing, because I know part of the intention of that was to send it out to politicians and get some engagement from the local government to see if you could move the needle on some of those things. So how has that been going? Have they been pretty receptive to it? Yeah, it's been really fascinating. 
So we've gone from a place when I started to work for CCOF eight years ago where organic was a fairly taboo subject in most circles of agricultural conversations in the State House of California in Sacramento to a place where CDFA, California Department of Food and Agriculture staff, are starting to pick up talking points from our reports. So I just call that a win overall when people can reference the science, the data that we put together with the aid of modern species and have that floor to stand on, they can really see the potential of what organic can offer for the agricultural community. I think it's twofold. I think it's having something to stand on. And then I also think it's the immense growth in organic that we're witnessing. Uh, so just in the last five years, we've gone from four and a half percent to 10 and a half percent. So a huge jump in organic production. And as people see the economic benefits of it, the climate change benefits of it, the possibility to transform agricultural systems in California, it starts to become less taboo. So you'll see the big agricultural institutions, traditional agricultural institutions in California are the Farm Bureau and Western Growers. And we now have representation in a whole bunch of different sectors as part of those agricultural institutions because folks have transitioned their land. So on the boards of those institutions at the county level and at the state level, you're starting to see organic representation because people have integrated organic into their portfolio. And so it's not just small-scale farmers anymore. It is small-scale, medium-scale, large-scale farming operations, retail and handling institutions, processor handlers. And as people familiarize themselves with what organic is, it becomes to seem less impossible and it starts to seem very pragmatic. So there's a couple of different campaigns that we have going on right now. So it's not just there's like right the passive kind of group think which is happening, which we're witnessing happening on the state level, but also in these social circles that hold the levers of power in ag. But then there's very targeted campaigns that we've developed to continue to educate people and bring them along. So we have a whole campaign right now around meat called Meat Matters. And we are working primarily with small and medium scale organic livestock producers to address their specific needs. So we have a bill, AB 888, which is moving through the state house right now on on-farm slaughter to expand the capabilities of small and medium scale meat producers to be able to slaughter on-farm because there's a dearth of processing facilities here in California, as there is across the United States, quite frankly, and there's a really huge bottleneck for certified facilities. So in order to sell meat as organic, even if it's raised organically and is certified on the farm, if it's not processed in a USDA certified facility that is has an organic handling license, it cannot be marketed as organic, which seems you know, there's a reason for that, right? But to get the meat all the way to the point where it's ready to be slaughtered and to do all the work of raising that animal organically, to not be able to sell it as organic is a huge financial burden to producers. And it dissuades folks from transitioning to organic. And also, it's an economic challenge for smaller producers if they're not able to recoup all of the costs that it takes to raise animals organically. So on-farm slaughter is one way to address that, AB888. So that's moving forward right now. And then we're also working with groups of producers across the state to address the processing bottleneck because we realize that not everybody can slaughter all of their animals on the farm. That is not an expectation any of us should be having of small, medium-scale, or large-scale producers. So working with CDFA, who is acknowledging the challenge and acknowledging what there is to assure that there can be government support in the way of financing 
for processing facilities to get certified as organic and adding additional processing facilities across the state. And Meat Matters, it also, we've been talking about it and framing it in terms of climate change because one way to combat wildfires here in California is to graze. And that if you look back at the history of California, these are not pristine lands that were not grazed until colonial settlers came here in the 1700s with the Spanish indigenous people for millennia here in California actively stewarded and managed the land by creating spaces for grazing animals, right? They were not cows, they were mostly deer, but they created space for grazing animals and then they allowed animals to graze on those pastures and then they hunted them. So we're really trying to, to uplift the possibility of grazing as a fire abatement tool in addition to all of the climate change benefits that come with having pasture-raised animals. Yeah, I was just reading an article about something about that, about traditional grazing methods or even just like controlled burns or different things like that that had been historical practices going back since, you know, sort of the beginning of time. All it, they ended up showing that they're much better fire management, like control practices, and it's just... With organic and with fire and with so many other things, it always seems that it just goes back to, well, if we just do things the way we used to do for <laughs> thousands of years instead of all these modern things that we think we're cutting corners and, and like improving things, the system with, if we just go back to the way it was done, then everything works better <laughs> as part of the system. It's yeah. just so funny that like as soon as we pull ourselves out of the system or think we're better than it or we're smarter than it, we get ourselves into trouble. <laughs> I think it's really, for me, it is merging historical techniques with also insight of the present, because there's a whole lot of agricultural knowledge that we have now that our great-grandparents didn't have that can be put to use in new systems. And it's also, for me, an acknowledgement that humans are part of the ecosystem in which we exist. And when you try to extrapolate human existence from the ecosystem, that's when things start to go horribly wrong. When we acknowledge that we are part of an ecosystem, even though we live in these nice insulated boxes where lights generally turn on and there's running water and electricity and all these modern conveniences, we must acknowledge our impact on the land and steward appropriately. One of my favorite books that I've read recently is called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmer. I really recommend it. She's a ecologist. She's a PhD ecologist and professor, and she's also an indigenous woman. And she melds modern scientific knowledge with traditional knowledge and juxtaposes them in a really beautiful and poetic way. And one of her arguments in the latter part of that book, she talks about becoming indigenous to place and how, because the majority of folks that live here in the United States now are descendants of colonial settlers, and we have been encouraged to move over generations and people don't tend to stay rooted in the same spot for all different reasons of our modern economy, we lose that ability to become indigenous to place, to understand the ecologies in which we're living over a lifetime and pass those understandings on to our children and our children's children. And so she talks about that practice of observation and teaching and being in an environment as a necessity if we as a species are going to survive. Yeah, I love that. The problem is so bad, in fact, that I was just reading an article about tips to live more sustainably in, in your 
area, your region. And one of the number one tips was just learn what grows in your area. (laughs) The fact that most people have no idea what grows in their area or have no idea how this thing that they bought at the store grows at all, whether it grows on a tree or a vine or anything like that. Like most people just are so disconnected from the food system these days that it's no wonder we've got ourselves into such a mess. But not understanding your region, your land, understanding what grows there and what the seasons are and so on and so forth is so important, I think, to making sure that that land is still in good working condition for future generations. So I appreciate that tip. Speaking of future generations and someone with their fingerprint or their finger on the pulse, I should say, of the organic industry, what do you feel like the future looks like right now? It sounds like lots of growth on U.S. land converting to organic, which is amazing because I know that's been one of the problems for a while. And it sounds like you're doing some work on getting younger people excited about farming again. I think I saw that Forager, that brand, kind of invested some in future organic farmers, and obviously you're doing so many other things around policy. So what gets you most excited right now about the future and the way things are coming together? So our foundation invests in people who are doing the work on the ground to get them the knowledge or the capital or the mentorship or the skills needed so that they can be successful. And through that relationship of support, we get to hear people's stories of how they are successful and how they are changing their small piece of the universe, or sometimes larger pieces of the universe. And it's that which gives me inspiration. So reading about one of the future organic farmer students this year, Charlotte Epps, who's up in Oregon, creating a whole new organic farm on her campus. Reading about the farmer, Jared, in the Midwest, who's transitioning his 800-acre farm, he's fourth generation, to all organic over many years and their plants over time. And getting these tidbits of stories of people who are making real change on the ground right now. They're stewarding soil. They are rebuilding community. They are involving the next generation. They are taking over the farm from their great-grandparents and changing the legacy of what was conventional into organic. They're diversifying their farm income streams by starting a community garden or starting a community farm. They are really at the vanguard of this, this moment in time. And I think about it in terms of finding the light in the next generation and finding the folks who are going to carry that torch forward and are burning bright in these places all across the U.S. A lot of times as the only person in their whole community who knows what organic means and is making it happen. And that is where I find inspiration. Of course, like the policy change and all of that, that's beautiful as well, but I think I'm most touched by the individual stories of the farmers who now, because they've gone organic, have made enough money for their sons and daughters to come home and continue the tradition of farming, that their kids don't need to live in the city and work a second job to support the family farm, that they can come home to their organic dairy in Idaho. That's where I find my inspiration. That's beautiful. And you were saying those were some stories through the CCOF website that people can find? Yeah, you can find all those websites through our blog at ccof.org. 
Great. So we'll point people there for inspiration as well as to the different programs that we mentioned that CCUF is working on. So a lot of amazing stuff there. I feel like we could, of course, geek out on this subject forever, but we're running short on time for this episode. So we'll just go ahead and wrap up here. So I appreciate everything that you're doing and thanks for coming on and sharing this story and giving us some good books to read and movies to watch. It makes me want to add actually like a, I already have a book list in progress, but I want to make a movie list now for our online community. So I appreciate that. And thanks for doing everything you personally and CCUF are doing to help move the world forward. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Gage. Cheers. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Go to EvolveCPG.com to learn about our new impact workshop, Exponential Good. Over six weeks, we'll be thinking bigger, getting relevant, spreading throughout, going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Jessica or her organization, go to ccof.org. Business can be a powerful force for good. Is your brand living up to its full potential? Visit EvolveCPG.com to learn about our new workshop, Exponentially Good, to scale your impact exponentially. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. 